0: Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly Kilburb, or Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Many times, planners focus only on the dollars, but Claudia Tordini and Richard Franklin have a different approach. Claudia brings together her background in business, art, and creativity to provide coaching and consulting services on family wealth and inheritance planning, leadership and team building, and creativity and innovation. Richard has practiced law as a trust and estate's attorney for 30 years. His experience in working with wealthy families has been instrumental in informing his thinking and his work on behalf of Appanage on the broader subject of family wealth and inheritance planning. Their company, Appanage, supports wealth and inheritance planning for families across multiple generations. Thank you both for being on the show.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk about this new approach that you have, because again, one of the things I mentioned in the introduction is that a lot of times people just look at the dollars. So they're like, This is how much money you have, this is what might be subject to taxation. Let's do an A B trust or you know, whatever kind of lends itself to the dollars. But you have actually written extensively, and both of you speak on this idea that the planning should be different. So, in what way do you think that the planning should be different?
2: Right. So we are adding to wealth and inheritance a well-being component. So that families can use their wealth as the resource to build on the family's well-being and its individual's flourishing. Mm-hmm. For example, one example would be have the family build their own well-being framework, incorporating empirical data research from well-being theory, and then data research, you know, on principles of inheritance and wealth transfer. But to come into this whole framework that in the long term, it really helps the family. The families were intentional
0: to build on their well-being and flourishing. And when you say well-being, what kinds of things are you generally referring to? Well, that's
1: a good point too. I mean, when you break it down to its basic level, it's about getting the most out of what makes life worth living. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a lot of research and data out there to give you some
3: clues about
1: that. It's sort of very intentional about those elements, more positive emotion, more meaning, purpose, better relationships, more achievement. Those are the kinds of things that people are looking for. And there's, as I said, there's more, there's a lot of research and data out there and and just trying to get families to be very intentional about their approach to it.
0: Does that well-being change from family to family, or do you find that it is Generally, the same concepts in every family. That's an interesting
2: question because each family has, you know, a particular structure. And when we think that within well-being, you know, we have health as one component, you know, mm-hmm. which can also be mental health, you know, then of course that brings a different profile for each family. The way they will have to invest and they will, the way they will have to focus on that particular aspect, but then. You know, at the end of the day, well-being, that mean, means to be happier or to feel satisfied with your life. And so there are general aspects that they all have to build into that, like achievement and positive relationships and positive emotion. I mean, there is a common denominator to build well-being.
0: Right. And when you're thinking about these things in terms of estate planning, How do you communicate something that is not dollar driven to clients? Because I do think we've become very used to, accustomed to talking about estates in terms of dollars. So when we talk about planning, we say, this is how much money you have now. This is how much you might have later. Here are the things we're going to do to make sure that we pass that along. But when you start talking about incorporating other things into, uh, you refer to it in your article, you know, having the well-being baseline, how do you talk to clients about this in a way that they understand if we've always talked about it a different way?
1: Well, it's a great question. Thank you. I think one of the things I play on a lot is that they're about data, you know, sort of looking at some of the data, for example, And one of the um, data sets that's been really interesting to me to look at that I think has changed significantly over the past 30, 40 years is life expectancy. Mm -hmm. And it's upper end, you know, for affluent families, life expectancy has expanded greatly in the United States. Right. In 2016, there was a study published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association that linked life expectancy with income. And at the top 1%, a woman's likely to live about 90 years, and a man about 88 years. Of course, those are just averages. And and anecdotally, I see in my office, frequently people who are 100. And so whenever I'm meeting with a client now, I tell them, you know, a couple, I say, one of you is likely to live to be 100. And, And what that means is their children would inherit when they're in their 70s, if they inherit under the traditional approach of getting everything at the time of the surviving parent's death.
0: Right, right. Which is problematic, because and especially when you talk about not just transfer of wealth, but also transfer of business interests and that kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah, lots of issues associated with it. And I, I have a term that I refer to it as the Prince Charles effect. There's a perfect analogy to Prince Charles, who's 72 now. And she mm-hmm. his mother, Queen Elizabeth, is 95. She just turned 95 in April. And her husband, Prince Philip, would have been 100 in June. Right. he So he's been waiting to inherit the kingdom his entire life. So when you really start to think about inheritance and the timing of it and how that relates to well-being. To us, there's really a, a significant an entry point there that inheritance in more of a lifetime format would be more useful. Okay. What's the, what's the real benefit of getting inheritance in the last quarter of your life expectancy as far as creating opportunities for you and helping to do with a whole range of different things coming at an earlier point in time might be more
3: advantageous.
0: Right. And so when you say that kind of thing to clients, are they open to it? Because I know that you know one of the things that clients sometimes, especially in the estate planning world focus on is this idea of control, right? Like not being able to cede control of assets, of businesses, of all kinds of things over to younger generations. And we're talking about younger generations, but as you pointed out, the younger generation could be 70. So how do you talk about that with clients and and kind of start changing that mindset? Because we've always been programmed, even in the estate practitioner world, to plan for the most part, you know, and, and again, I understand lifetime planning. I'm not discounting any of that, but traditionally, the idea is that you inherit when you know mom or dad passes away. So, how do you have those conversations, or how do you change that mentality that maybe this is something we should start earlier?
1: Well, I'm going to go back to the life expectancy element just for a moment. To
0: mm-hmm.
1: one way I explain that is under this one study that I mentioned, uh, 2016 in the Journal of the German American Medical Association the median income was $61,175. And at the median income, life expectancy would be for a woman about four to five years less than it would be at the 95th percentile, which is 224000 a year. Okay. And a very extensive study. So just imagine that you had an English teacher making 61175 a year and she's teaching, you know, the majesty of the English language through Shakespeare and Dickinson and Jane Austen, and she feels like, she's really flourishing, right? You know, so she's not trying to make more money because she's already doing what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. And in a wealthy family, but her life expectancy at that income would be four or five years less. And if her parents were seven or 30 when she was born, and one of them is going to live to be 100, she would inherit under the traditional approach at 70. So she would live, if she's 40 years old now, she'd live 30 years at this median income with its median life expectancy outcome. And so, one thing the parents might do if she's from a wealthy family is supplement her income, not try to force her to change her life to make more money, because that's going to make her unhappy, but to supplement her income up to, let's say, the 224, where she's at the 95th percentile. And at 95th, she's 0.6 0.6 years away from the very longest life expectancy of the top 1% of income. So she's very close. Mm-hmm. They would have to give her about 160000 a year. And just imagine what having another 160000 a year is like for someone. It's, it's the difference between having access to good quality health care, right. being able to shop at Whole Foods, maybe buy organic, maybe having the opportunity to do some other things that really add to the quality and texture of life. So it's a, it's a really big deal. And besides that, it extends her life expectancy on average another five years, which is pretty astounding.
0: Sure. And I can see where that you, when you talk about it in those terms, you know, you're basically telling families that their children could live longer and that would be appealing, right? Because we all want what's best for our kids. Do you sense, or do you feel pushback from people who say, but, If we waited until the end, we get the step up in basis, or but if we waited until the end, we could control it a little longer. Do you hear those kinds of pushback or do you not once you explain it?
1: Well, no, I I hear all different things. But for the most part, I think people find the information helpful, appreciate knowing that there are ways to do it that are thoughtful. And one of the things that Claudia and I have looked at a lot is sort of the model of countries. And I'll come back to the tax point in a moment. But to point families to the the idea that there are lots of countries out there, and Claudia can talk about it a little bit more. We actually have a new article coming out in the Bloomberg Journal about the model that countries provide to families. That this is the, what countries are actually doing. Some of the the really smart ones is a model that families can follow.
2: Yeah, indeed. Like countries have actually invested a significant amount of resources for the last fifteen years. To find better ways to drive their policy making and budgeting. Mm-hmm. There was a clear awareness that the improvement of the financial well-being of a country mm-hmm. did not equate to the improvement of the citizens' well-being. So interesting. There's been the Council of the European Union invested 12 years doing research until they finally adopted in, in 2019 what they call the economy of well-being, it's called beyond the GDP. It's a set of indicators use expanded measurement of progress. So it's an enlarged GDP and it also includes components of well-being, environment, and social matters. We also seen in 2019, New Zealand coming up with a well-being budget that is now entering its third year With a very, you know, particular focus on how they're spending every
0: dollar that is spent has to hit the targets of their will be okay. And when sometimes when we talk about other countries, people will point and they'll say, "Well, maybe New Zealand can do it because they're smaller." Do you think that these kinds of programs can scale?
1: Yes, I want to come back to that point. But why I go to this, or why we have this entry point to what the countries are doing, is that the countries are very intentional about picking particular areas of focus, you know, that we're going to make healthcare, the healthcare system better. Mm -hmm. We're going to do things. And so the, the idea is that that's a model families can follow. Therefore, if you're going back to the point I made earlier, transferring during lifetime might be better for well-being. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's just doling out cash. The family can identify, you know, look, we want every family member to have, you know, one of the basics I keep coming back to is that, Just access to good health care, you know, good health care coverage and so forth, which is so key, Mm -hmm. but also to be able to live in a resilient, safe community, you know, and in our English teacher's case, 61,000 in the United States, that might be very difficult. Right. So having a transfer of wealth that's very targeted to do certain things that are, that research says improves well-being, that's what the countries are doing. And then- Come back to what your, one of your original points was from a tax point of view, you know, like the step up in basis. Actually, it's much, much more efficient from a, a wealth transfer tax point of view to transfer during lifetime. In fact, if you're going to pay a gift tax, if you're going to pay any kind of tax, it ought to be a gift tax, not an estate tax and not a, a generation skipping tax. Gift taxes are 28.6% less expensive to pay an estate tax under current rates, mm-hmm. that percentage of benefit may go up, you
3: know, if
1: the estate tax rate goes up in the future. Sure. Yeah. There are exemptions for paying the healthcare cost and paying tuition costs, and right. those are unlimited. So the parents can pay everybody's healthcare premiums who are getting who's getting coverage on the exchange and that one, it doesn't even count as a gift for gift tax purposes. If you were waiting till death to do that, well, the exemption is not available at death. So, you know, there are certain, you know, real advantages to transferring during lifetime. The $15,000 annual gift tax exclusion is only available when you're alive. So, all those things uh, you really can't take advantage of post death.
0: Right. We used to joke about the education, the, the tuition exemption. We used to call that the emily gilmore exemption from the gilmore girls because that was you know the wealthy grandmother who's paying their granddaughter's tuition at yale for her to go and and you know her mom was working class and she was not so that was a classic example of you know multi-generational wealth that you could easily shift during lifetime and that was something uh especially when when gilmore girls was popular that people could relate to so yeah no absolutely
2: there's much more than families can do. And particular area where we see that we call parents' attention is with some life events that actually somehow challenge people's well-being, say mm-hmm. a divorce, for example, or say you know a, a stress, time, or even starting a new family. You know, mm-hmm. just easing the pressure to go back to work and allowing. For an extended maternity or paternity leave of, you know, the parents it has a huge impact on the well-being of the parents and the newborn too. There are sometimes, you know, burnouts or career crises, and having the chance to have a sabbatical and rethink a career change, for example, or even going back to school, you know, in at the mid-career point. And I'm talking about more than just the tuition. You know, if you are a mid-career person, you probably have a family, a house, you have a lot of other expenses. Being able to be supported during that, it definitely has a huge, a huge impact on the person's well-being. And it does determine successful transition of a difficult period like that.
0: When you have these conversations with the client, are these conversations that you have? just with the clients with money, or do you have it with the entire family? Or is that something that evolves where you start out maybe talking to granddad and grandma and then end up talking to everybody? Like, How does that happen?
1: Well, that is all different ways too. One of the ideas that Claudia and I had with doing this kind of consulting work is that we didn't want the ideas just to be about the uber wealthy. They're about every family and it's completely scalable. So for the uber-wealthy family, you might have a really complex sort of well-being framework that Claudia mentioned, you know, to begin with. But, you know, at a more modest family might just be, hey, what we can do right now is pay for college and make sure everybody's got good health care coverage. And then maybe in future years, we try to build on that. But the idea is that everybody can be sort of focused and understand the, the science which has really developed over the past 20 years or so, well-being theory, the science behind it. And during that period of time, life expectancy has changed dramatically as well, both at the upper end and the bottom. Life expectancy in the United States at the bottom has gone down, and likely over the past year because of the pandemic even more so. But at the top end, it's gone up dramatically.
0: And one of the things when you were talking about like life events, we talked about some events that weren't terrific, right? Like like divorce. But then you also talked about events where there is, you know, going back to school or whether there's a new baby. You know, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of pushing planning off because we think we'll think about it later, right? Have you noticed that the pandemic, since you mentioned life expectancy, especially at the bottom, have you noticed that the pandemic is We've heard a lot in the media about, you know, people are changing kind of the way that they view life and the way that they want to pursue it as a result of the the past 12 months or so. Maybe they want to travel more. Maybe they want to start a new business. Maybe they want to quit their jobs. Are you hearing that kind of discussions that families are having? Are you seeing a change in your own clients or prospective clients as a result of the pandemic beyond the life expectancy?
2: Well, some, including ourselves, right? Like we've been down for over, you know, 12, 13, 14 months. We're going into 14 months. So there is, I think, a shift of like a philo- kind of a philosophical shift of what is life about and what do I right. need to focus on. There's also, you know, just looking at the market, the real estate market is on fire. Right. People are changing houses because they are realizing that if they have to be locked down with little kids and the whole family, you know, is in an apartment, it's not healthy for them. And they are moving into, you know, bigger spaces Or people are living the crowded cities, going more into the neighborhoods. And those are all, you know, in a way, reactions to having a better life and understanding how do we want to spend our money? in my understanding there's a lot driven by taxes too with all the changes that are going on that's another big driver mm-hmm.
1: there's a great focus in the trust and states world about making gifts before the the lifetime gift and estate tax exclusion could be reduced or rates go up you know those kinds of things or different planning techniques that we've used successfully over many years you know might be become more restrictive so there is a great deal of focus on making gifts right now.
0: It kind of keep going back to this idea of you know who's involved because I do think again the kinds of things that you're you're talking about tend to be bigger conversations than just where do you want your money to go after you die. So you're asking questions about you know what kinds of things are your your children or grandchildren you know what life events what what's going on when you mention the increase incentives to give during lifetime. Oftentimes, that was just the advice, right? The classic, the classic advice on that is to write a check in December. Like here's your here's your annual exclusion. But you've talked a lot more about being deliberate, right? Like making choices. How do you uh, again kind of communicate that to clients? Like, do you suggest that they sit down with everybody in the family and talk about what deserves our attention right now, or do you think about Is it more future-based or does that all change depending on who the family is?
2: Well, I'm going to bring an example. We just finished a workshop, 4 weeks workshop for um, wealth managers on wealth and well-being, which intentionally, I mean, our intention was it would be for their clients. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that the feedback we got from almost all of them is Well, this is great for my clients, but you actually got me thinking about my own case, right? My own will. I think I need to rewrite my will. And I think to, you know, I think I need to rewrite my trust. So that I think is a huge sign that this is for everyone. And that when you understand the underlying logic and data, you really understand that there's a lot here. Right.
1: I think the optimum, you know, the optimum in a really smart, educated, thoughtful family would be as the family group. But if you're, if you're a family just starting in this, part of it might be that the parents get a little educated about it to begin with mm-hmm. and just start doing things that'll be helpful. Being in their wills and trust, for example, taking out all negative language and start being positive.
0: Can you give an example of like what that might look like?
1: In the trust in the state's world, it's been frequent to talk about incentive trust, like where the trustee is to match uh, the beneficiary's W2 each year, taking that language out because overwhelming data that show that extrinsic rewards don't motivate or't you know are not good to create intrinsic motivation. so okay. it's not a positive it's not a situation that's likely to be helpful it's likely to be. It's controlling and manipulative and likely to be harmful.
2: And not only that, people engage in careers that are money making careers to get a better result, right? To get a better mm-hmm. W2 match. That's really driving people in the wrong direction.
1: Maybe not towards something that's meaningful and purposeful to them, but to something just to make more money.
0: Right, and one of the things you also mentioned in your journal article, the um, and we'll again, I'll make sure that I link to these in the show notes for folks to look at. But when you start talking about well-being and doing things for the right reasons, you spend a little bit of time talking about philanthropy and the connection that philanthropy has to well-being. And this is something I actually see in in my own family. That my my kids, my daughters, uh, they started their own charity because I do think that pandemic is accelerating this for a lot of families. But this idea that Doing something with purpose is good for you and therefore, you know, produces good results down the line. Can you talk a little bit about like that connection and how it factors into your philosophy on estate planning?
1: Sure. And I think that's an excellent one. We all know that philanthropy holds the potential of being beneficial in the sense of helping people do something beyond themselves, to be more pro-social, helping other people. And there's a well-being benefit to that. We all know that gratitude is like one of the the most written about sort of positive psychology interventions. And being able to actually have something to give makes you grateful for that. And, you know, it creates psychological capital, so to speak. But there's a a nuance to it. And the nuance is that each person has to do it with self determination and autonomy. You have to do the giving in a way that's meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. So, in the context of a family, who, for example, maybe has created a foundation hundred years ago, just giving in the same way that your great-great-great-grandfather did may not be, you know, very meaningful to you. Right. So philanthropy within a family could be done in a way where each person gets to decide, in effect, how they're going to give, how they're going to use their time and money in a way that's really meaningful to them. And then you get the well-being benefit out of it. So those legal instruments, you know, foundation governing documents and charitable remainder trust, charitable lead trust, all those kinds of things could be written in a way that really does reflect the understanding of autonomy and self-determination in achieving that well-being benefit.
0: I'm struck when I listen to you, you know, one of the things that keeps popping in to my head is flexibility. Like a lot of what you're saying Suggests a level of flexibility as things change, as people change, as times change. And that's really interesting to me because I had mentioned to you uh, before the show that I cut my teeth in estate planning. And, you know, estate planning traditionally has not always been about flexibility you know, going back to the idea of folks trying to exert control, you know, there's a lot of documents aren't flexible. I mean, we try, obviously, you know, when we write trust, you try to make them as, as flexible as you can. But a lot of the crux of basic estate planning really isn't about being flexible. It's about choosing a certain number of years to transfer wealth or a certain criteria. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about this in this way, because it sounds like what you're advocating for kind of under the surface is more flexibility.
1: That's one part of it. I think in the, in the context of a charitable gifts, yes, I think you would design it in a way knowing that how the funds are going to be spent would change over time and that there is reason for that. In the bigger picture sense, I think we're sort of reframing estate planning as our number one goal is to improve the well-being of each family member. So that they can get the most out of what makes life worth living, and that the family wealth is a resource for that. We can be intentional, like following the model of the countries and so forth, and how we approach that. I'll give another example that I think is so fascinating in the estate planning world. Historically, all the focus on spending was on negative spending, how to protect them from the beneficiary spending unwisely, for example, as opposed to what are the positive ways to spend? Right. And now there's a lot of research about positive spending, like on experience. And so one of the basic things that I tell people, just think about when you're going on a family vacation, be more intentional about and do it in a way where you're really promoting things that achieve a well-being benefit. And one of the big things in well-being theory is sort of playing on strengths. And so there may be common strengths within a family. And for when you're on vacation, that. Do things, activities that hit those common strengths, the vacation more powerful than it would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so just spending time. So this is one thing parents can do without even involving everybody else. It'll be a richer, more intense experience. The other people won't know why. They'll just feel better about it.
0: One I kind of wanted to circle back to one of the things when you were talking about just a few moments ago about the well-being and, and how it should be the goal to increase the well-being. And we started off this program by referencing studies that were data-driven. You know, we often think about state planning successes as being measured by dollars saved. If we go back to the the idea of this being data-driven, is there a standard where you can look at, at what your planning has done over time and say, what are the ways that we measure success when it comes to well-being? And yes, we've achieved the goals we set out to achieve.
2: Yes. In fact, you know, when we talked about when we create the well-being framework with the family, there's a piece of that framework that is measuring well-being, measuring families well-being. Mm-hmm. We design it according to what are the values and what's the official focus of well-being for that family. but. It has to be measured in order to know that what they are investing or what they are doing really yields into people's well-being. There are many, many metrics out there available to everyone. They are free. There are many resources if you you want to measure well-being in its broad array of interpretations or aspects. But one easy that is a starting point with any person and any family is, you know, in a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your life, for example, or how happy are you? Just including that within a family and, you know, making aware to everyone who is more or less happy or who is more or less satisfied with their life. tells a lot. Right. But from there, you know, we, we have an array of, you know, there's a the positivity ratio, for example, which is how, how much positive emotion you have in your life. And that's been created by Barbara Fredrickson, who is really the reference in terms of positivity in the world today. And she has set a threshold of three. And again, you can go online, there's a free assessment. It's maybe five minutes to fill in the survey. Mm -hmm. And it will give you a number, and it will tell you immediately if you're below three, you don't have enough positive emotion in your life. So, to going going back to your point, yes, measurement is key, and we do include that. We don't, of course, we don't want to be obsessive, or we don't want to be obsessive because this is not a financial return, or this is not a number that you know. It's critical to act on the spot, but it is definitely a way to set a north where to go
0: and to measure, to keep track of how
2: is it going.
0: Kind of wrapping um, a lot of what we talked about up, it's this idea, it sounds like it's an ongoing process, right? So this isn't when you go in and meet with your estate planner once and then you don't think about it for 10 more years, but it's this idea of, I think you use the phrase deliberately and intentionally increasing happiness over time, right? So is this something that you encourage Trustees, fiduciaries, and clients to think about on a like, is it a yearly basis? Like, how often do you encourage people to think about it? I mean, because it would seem like this is the kind of thing when we talk about measurements. And I understand you don't want to be obsessive, but like to see if it's working, you would want to check in with people because again, you're not getting a, a tax return that shows that you've increased your income and decreased your taxes. So do you have like suggestions for? how often folks should meet with folks to talk about this? Or or is this something that is a case-by-case basis?
1: I definitely think this would be something that you would focus on each year. And in the Mm -hmm. context of a trust, one of the things that I'm talking about now frequently is what I'm calling the well-being trust. And in that, I would require the trustee to meet with the beneficiaries each year to explain to them all the things about investing, but also how we've actually improved your well-being over the course of the year. Right. These are the the points that we talked about. Healthcare, you know, we went from a silver plan to a platinum plan, for example. What was your experience with that more expensive platinum plan? Was it better for you? And so objectively determining that we've actually had an impact here. You know, we helped you move to a, a more resilient, safe community with better green space. You know, so there would be objective and subjective. After all, subjective is more important in a sense because whether the person feels good about their life and they're happy and and progressing, it's most important to the person living inside their own skin, right? So subjective well-being is the, you know, it's a big component, but there are certainly parts of it that the trustee could look at objectively and the family could look at objectively. But still, try to hit you know all the um, sort of indications. But yeah, it's, it's a constant focus, and it's one that everybody's on. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the family is on the same journey toward getting the most out of what makes life worth living. And in that sense, you know, they can play together and collaborate together, and do that as frequently as they can.
0: Well, thank you so much for this. I think this has been really fascinating. I think that. We've, again, I think been kind of programmed to think about estate planning in a very different way. And I think that there's a lot of things happening in the world right now that are causing people to pause and think about what would make their lives better and how can they help their families. So I really do appreciate you being here today. If folks wanted to find you online or on social media, where would you point them?
1: Our website is appanage, A-P-P-A-N-A-G-E group. Dot com, And that's probably the best place to
0: find us. Great. And I'll be sure to put that link in the show notes so that people can easily find it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.